Hi, welcome back to Escape Leaving Hell Behind. In this podcast, we talk with people who have left an overbearing religion or cult behind. I, I used to think about that all the time. Please, please help me that they don't just rebaptize me after I die. But I knew it was going to happen. I know it's going to happen. But you know what gives me peace? All of that's made up anyway. It doesn't even matter. <laughs> It doesn't matter. It's not real. I'm not worried about it because I think it is real, but it's the idea of disregarding my wishes and not caring about consent. Yeah. No, they're definitely uh, the boundary thing. Most most of the Mormons that I grew up with and my own parents, they did not respect other people's boundaries. They just would walk over other people's boundaries all the time. And then they would get all offended and upset if anyone ever set a boundary with them. Even more if that person enforced the boundary. They enforced the boundary. Whoo, what a terrible person. And now where we have been talking about consent and that whole sad situation. Because the church just cares about its image. And it has that whole helpline set up, not to actually help victims, but as a means to protect the church's image. And that's their number one priority. I mean, the church, if, if you study narcissistic abuse and the way that narcissists behave and compare it to the way the church behaves, There's just a lot that's the same. The narcissist only cares about their image. Will they stop doing bad things to to be a better person? Uh, No, but they want to be seen as a good person. So they will do good things in the presence of other people. And they will go out of their way to appear like they're this really good person. And then in private, when the doors are closed, that's when they're going to do terrible things to you. Right? And they're fine with that. As long as everyone that they're trying to impress thinks they're great and amazing and wonderful people, the church is the same way. They'll say in conference that they condemn abuse and that they don't tolerate it. They'll give lip service to it. Uh, but then they have this whole helpline set up to cover up abuse so that it doesn't come out that abuse exists in the church so that they can save their image. They're not, uh, they won't do anything to actually mandate bishops to report the abuse that they know about to authorities, to police, to social services, to anyone who could actually do anything because they don't care if it goes on. They only care about it not making them look bad, which is another reason why they're so quick to excommunicate. You know, they excommunicate the perpetrator and then they're done. They're done. They just wash their hands. Because now that person in their mind is no longer connected to their organization. And they no longer care. So I'm not surprised. I wish I could say that I was. I would love to be surprised. But when things like this come out, it's just not surprising to me because it's just how they operate. Um, uh, I'll tell you what was a surprise, but a pleasant surprise. Um, 
back when I was a teenager, there was an assistant scout master in our church who did some things with some of the boys that were inappropriate and it got reported to the Bishop and the Bishop did call the police. He called the police and he testified against him in court. So it can be done. It can be handled in a way that is responsible. I have respect for my Bishop back then because I feel like he handled that in a way that was responsible. He handled that in the best way to show that he cared about the victims and he was protecting them the best way that he could. He was not protecting the church. But yeah, the AP article, yeah, that's the church just needs to change that. They just need to change it. Just get rid of their helpline altogether. For starters, and just tell all the all the clergy, you can't see because I assume this is audio, but I'm holding up quotation air quotes. All the clergy that they need to act like mandated reporters. Because that would be really the only way to go about it to protect the victims. So what made you move towards leaving Mormonism? Oh, well, it was sort of a gradual unraveling. It started with um, just working so hard to be that perfect Mormon girl who does everything she's supposed to do. You know, I had four kids and they were all about two years apart And I was a stay-at-home mom for the most part. I did have a part-time job, but that wasn't a bad thing. I went to church every Sunday, and I went to the temple regularly. And I just really tried my level best to be that person I thought that God wanted me to be. I read my scriptures, and I prayed constantly, but it didn't really matter. Like, it didn't really matter how hard I tried to be that perfect Mormon person, that perfect follower of Jesus, because it was never fulfilling, for lack of a better word. It it never, it didn't actually solve any of the problems in my life. In fact, I think believing in the church and working so hard to stay faithful is what kept me in that marriage, that bad marriage for so long, because I believed if I prayed hard enough and I worked hard enough that I could somehow make that situation work. I could make the marriage work. I could change myself into this person who always felt warm, fuzzy feelings towards my husband, even when he was treating me like shit, you know, it was always my fault because I wasn't good enough. I wasn't ever good enough. And I was working overtime to make myself good enough and to change my own heart, to make myself more humble and more easy to love and just a better wife because I felt so inadequate and like I was so bad at being a wife and so bad at, at doing the things that he wanted. And for anyone who understands abusive relationships, it's very normal to feel that way when you're in one. Because they make you feel like nothing you do is ever good enough. They make you feel like you're the most inadequate person in the world because they keep changing the goalposts. Because once you meet one goalpost, then they move it 
So you can't actually meet it. And they keep doing that. So you perpetually feel like you have to work extra hard to please them because nothing you ever do is actually enough to please them. Does that make sense? Yeah, that does. And so you're always jumping through these hoops, but you're thinking that it's you. It's never them. You're always thinking that it's you. And Mormonism really was part of that. It really kept me in that situation. And due to how I'd been brought up and what I've been taught about happiness and how you can only be happy if you're righteous and you're doing everything God wants you to do and you're turning into the person God wants you to be, of course, I believed that it was me. And Mormonism really supported that. And at some point, because I wasn't really allowed to have opinions that were different than his. And I was allowed to speak my mind if I agreed with him on something. Like I was allowed to have a political opinion that was the same as his. I was allowed to have a religious opinion that was the same as his. I was allowed to go off about something that he was in agreement on. But if I ever had an original thought of my own, and and I had many, I had many original thoughts. I was by no means a zombie, okay? I couldn't ever voice those out loud around him because it would turn into a problem. So I started writing and, and trying to become a better writer. And a big part of that was that in order to have any place to put my thoughts, I couldn't necessarily speak them out loud, out loud but I could write them down. Right. So I it turned into something I was constantly doing this writing and trying to get better at it. And I started reading a lot of books to improve my writing because I was writing fiction, young adult fiction. And so I was really delving into young adult books. And, you know, there's the ones that everyone knows about, like Twilight, that, you know, I read it, but eh, not really my cup of tea. Lots of problems with it. I'm actually not going to go into that right now. And, and I read a lot of other books. Some of them were great. A lot of them were full of cliches controlling boyfriends that were somehow held up as the standard made me really uncomfortable. But there was this one series I picked up at the library. It actually wasn't even a series. It was a YA verse novel by Ellen Hopkins called Burned. And it was about a girl who leaves a cult and starts her life over essentially. And when I read the blurb, I thought, oh, this sounds really good. And then I started reading it and the cult was my religion. And I did not appreciate that. I felt like I was under attack because she was painting Mormon women like they were really weak and like they couldn't think for themselves. And I, for one, did not appreciate that because I did not see myself as weak. I did not see myself as subservient. And I did not see myself as not being able to think for myself. So I decided I was going to write this paper, this article on how Mormon women were strong and how all these stereotypes were wrong. And I was really angry about this book. I was really angry because I felt like it was just full of stereotypes about Mormon women that were just insulting. 
right? And, and Mormon women were the first to be given the right to vote, or sorry, the second in this country to be given the right to vote. And that's because Mormon men value Mormon women so much and yada, yada, yada. Like that's what I told myself in my brain. So I went to the library and I decided I was going to start there. Let's start this article by talking about how Mormon women were some of the first women in the country to get the right to vote and how strong they are. And I did a little research and lo and behold, it wasn't what I thought it was. Yes, Mormon women were some of the first in the country to get the right to vote, but that wasn't because Mormon men really wanted them to have it. It was because people outside of Utah really hated polygamy. They hated it. They thought it was servitude. And they believed that if they pushed to get Mormon women and women in Utah in particular, the right to vote, that women would overturn polygamy. And guess what? Instead of overturning polygamy, they were obedient to their husbands and they voted how their husbands wanted them to vote. And so all it really did was increase the power of the Mormon church within Utah, which made the opponents of polygamy really angry. So then we have the Edwards Tucker Act which took the right to vote away from women in Utah as a punishment for polygamy. Utah women were among some of the first women to receive the right to vote in this country. It was taken away from them when those who had given it to them in the first place realized it wasn't going to be to their benefit. And the ones that were rallying around women wanting them to vote were not the Mormon men. It was not about Mormon women being respected. It was not about Mormon women having husbands who wanted to lift them up and, and show their voices and, and give them opportunities. That was not the case at all. So this whole line that I had been taught about Mormon men lifting Mormon women up and, and making them really the most powerful women in the world, because, you know, the Relief Society is the largest women's organization in the world, right? But it's run by men. Go figure. That was all just propaganda. None of that was real. And the more I looked into it and the more I researched it, I could not deny that all of my perceptions were completely skewed. And I could no longer write this article about how Mormon women were being misrepresented and how they weren't subservient to men and how they were actually really strong because I was wrong. I went forward to write this article and I came out realizing I was completely wrong and that my perceptions were skewed and that women were not equal to men within Mormonism. And I started to notice things. I started to notice, for instance, that we were having all these lessons about how men and women were equal in Relief Society. And I started asking myself, why do we always have to be told we're equal constantly if we're equal? Like there wouldn't be a need for that. Like if we were equal, women would be able to hold leadership positions just like men could, we would have women who are bishops. We would have women who are Sunday school presidents. We would have 
women in the first presidency. Women would have the priesthood. It wouldn't be this differential of men lead the home and women follow. It wouldn't be this differential of men lead the church and women can lead children and women can lead other women, but women can never tell a man what to do. So that was really where it started for me. And then everything from there, I was so angered by that book that at first I thought it was Satan. You know, I thought it was Satan that was causing me to be angered by that book. But then I learned about cognitive dissonance. And I realized that the anger I felt wasn't from Satan. It was because my firmly held beliefs were being challenged. It was because of this scientific phenomenon called cognitive dissonance. And then I looked up Satan and the history of Satan. And I realized that Satan and the devil were just a made-up construct. You know, I had always, always believed growing up Mormon that Satan and the devil was real. That anytime I felt angry or, or you know, depressed, that that was Satan. That was Satan taking over my emotions. But how could that be if Satan was just a made-up construct meant, meant to control people? How could that be? Is it possible that maybe all this stuff I'm afraid to research and question is stuff I shouldn't be afraid to research and question? Is it possible that when I'm angry or depressed or sad, that maybe that's not from Satan, that maybe that's just a normal human emotion, that maybe there's a reason I'm feeling that? Is it possible that maybe all of this is just made up? Maybe none of this is real. See how it just snowballs? It just snowballed. And then to make matters even more, to make the motivation to leave even more compelling. I start, I, at this point, I had been reading a lot of self-help books and I was examining my own childhood more. And I was realizing that the way I had been brought up had been very harmful to me. And I was trying to parent differently to my kids because I wanted them to have a better upbringing. And when they were really little and I was super, super Mormon mom, I was very controlling And I was not a very good mother because I cared more about controlling them than I did about their well-being. But as I did more work on myself and reading of self-help books and examination of my own childhood, the more I realized I didn't want to be the mother to my children that my mother was to me. I wanted to be a mother that actually helped them be the people they wanted to be. I wanted to be there to support them. I wanted them to feel loved unconditionally, not like they were only going to be loved if they believed like I believed. I wanted them to be who they were as people, and I wanted to see them for the people they were. And so I was gradually changing my parenting practices, try and be a more attuned parent, a more attuned mother. And I was gradually over time becoming a better mother. And the things I was learning about the church and having it all kind of fall apart very much 
this was in line with the changes that were happening in my personal life with trying to be a better mother as well. Because when I was very strict, devoted Mormon, it kept me from being an attuned mother, an attuned parent, because I was so stuck on them doing everything the religious way, the right way, the correct way. And so when all of the beliefs started to fall away, that really helped. That really helps me to be a better parent, really helped me to see my kids more as people and less as objects who needed to obey me. Obedience was no longer the central goal. And of course, once you squeeze the toothpaste out of the tube, you can never put it back in, right? And once the religion started falling apart and I could no longer believe in it, then I could no longer unsee all of the unhealthy stuff going on in my relationship with my husband. I could no longer keep praying that I was going to change to be a better person. What I could actually see that he was the one mistreating me and that he was also mistreating our children and that I could not protect them. So that's really the story. I stopped believing. I lost my entire community, save for maybe four or five people. My marriage fell apart, but it was a good thing because I could see that he was really, truly an abusive man. And by leaving him, I had more of a chance of saving my kids, giving them choices, putting them in a place where they could live their own lives and where they weren't going to be mistreated anymore. And where I could protect them, maybe not fully because, you know, joint custody is a thing, but definitely still better for them because when they were with me, they would see what a healthy home environment looked like. And when they were with me, they could have choices. And when they were with me, they could be themselves and they could grow and they could be loved unconditionally. Those are really great. As we are wrapping up for the day, what are three tips you have for people looking to leave a high demand religion or cult? Three things. Okay. First, you need to look around you and determine if the people in your life are actually your supporters. If they are actually your supporters and they actually care about you enough that whether you leave or whether you stay, it does not matter. They are going to support you and they are there for you. Then you need to keep them in your life. But if they are people who only want you to function within a prescribed role, within a belief system, who are going to condemn you and who are going to shame you and who are going to guilt you and who are not going to understand, those people, you just need to let them go. Let them go. They are not worth all the time of trying to fix those relationships. Because you're not going to be able to fix those relationships because they will never understand. So that would be my first. Second, it's really important to build new connections. If like me, you lost your family and you lost your husband and you lost an entire community, 
it's really important to connect to people, new people who will understand if they can't understand some of what you're going through, they can at least be there for you. And I call these people found family because they are your true family. They are the people who really understand you and really see you and who will be there for you. That's my second piece of advice. Third piece of advice. After you've left a religion, you may think that you are done deconstructing. You are not. Look at my great, great, well, I guess it's only one great. Look at my great grandfather on my mother's side. He left the church. He hated polygamy. He was a terrible, monstrous person because that's where he stopped. He didn't look at himself. He didn't think, oh, maybe I shouldn't treat women a certain way. Maybe I should treat them as people. Maybe I shouldn't continue the cycle of abuse that I have seen. No, he just continued it and he didn't think about it. And he just caused a whole bunch of trauma and passed more trauma down because even though he left the church, he stopped there. He didn't look at anything else. So that would be my third piece of advice is to really look at yourself after you've deconstructed and don't stop. Don't stop improving. Don't stop questioning. Don't stop growing. Keep going. Well, those are great tips. And thanks for coming on and have a great day. Me too. Thank you so much. I hope you have a wonderful evening. Thanks again for joining us today. As always, I want to give special thanks to our sponsor and friend, Corporate Design Solutions, who has generously made it possible for this podcast to be a reality. If anyone is looking for help protecting their digital info, please email Michael at helpdesk at corpdesignsolutions.com.